Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Chad Killian to discuss the article titled Physical Education Students' Usage and Perceptions of a Supplemental Online Health-Related Fitness Knowledge Curriculum. Uh, it was recently published in the European Physical Education Review. Um, as always, I'll put the full site of the article in the notes. Uh, Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Risto. And that, that title is a bit of a mouthful when you hear it read. <laughs> it is, but that. it's not that big of a mouthful of a paper. It's like it's a very simple concept in a way in what your what your paper was about. Yeah, I, I hope that you know the title reflects that. So you start off in the paper by talking about the importance of health-related fitness knowledge um, in students' development of lifelong physical activity and the, the kind of struggle that PE teachers face to deliver the content. Um, can you explain the meaning of that term first and then kind of telling us how uh, online instruction could help teachers improve students' health-related fitness knowledge? Yeah, sure. And just a shout out to my advisor, my mentor um, at the University of Illinois, Dr. Woods, who supported me during this paper. Um, it's one of my dissertation um, papers, so much appreciated the support I received from her. Um, and it, and you know, it's sort of peripherally, uh, H, you know, a health-related fitness knowledge paper. Um, that's sort of what the the um, the curriculum that we were looking at emphasized, um, and something I'm interested in. But you know, first of all, what is health-related fitness? Um, and and that's sort of a, an idea that kind of came about in the mid '80s. It's it's what we kind of all know uh, from fitness education that we might have received in teacher education. It's cardiorespiratory endurance, muscular endurance, muscular strength, flexibility, body composition. Um, there's some debate on, you know, whether or not those are the, the appropriate components for youth. Uh, there was a recent paper in EPER, I think, that, that sort of makes the case that maybe we need just cardiorespiratory endurance, muscular endurance, muscular strength for youth. Um, but that's probably for another podcast mm -hmm. debating that. <laughs> um, anyway, so health-related fitness knowledge is just basically knowledge, you know, surrounding that. Um, you know, the easiest thing to think about is, 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 is probably conceptual physical education, fitness education, standard three and aspects of standard four and five in the United States. Um, I jotted down a couple official, you know, definitions. Keating um, says in one of her papers that it's uh, defined as knowledge about individuals' ability to perform physical activity and protect themselves from chronic disease. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Zhu from University of Illinois is a definition that's used sort of a little bit more broadly. And that encompasses, you know, information similar to what Keating says, but also extends the fitness concepts, um, physiological understanding of fitness, effects of exercise, exercise prescription, nutrition, injury, injury prevention, um, et cetera. So, again, it's, it's, it's basically standard three and aspects of standard four and five um, in Shape America national standards. Right. So, so thinking about, you know, how, how online instruction could help, um, this kind of gets back to the origin story, why I even got interested in online Um to support quality physical education, digging around in a, you know, a drawer, just kind of looking for something. And, and one of Dr. Corbin or Chuck Corbin's um, conceptual PE books, <laughs> textbooks was, was laying around. Um, and I wasn't familiar with that uh, during my teacher education process undergrad. So looking at that, I'm like, I love the content, makes so much sense. Look up some, some, some articles, you know, that say that, Generally, people with better health-related fitness knowledge tend to be more physically active. I'm like, oh, this works. 
Um, but then I'm looking at, you know, how to implement the curriculum and it's like, oh, let's sit down in a classroom and teach this. Mm-hmm. And that's when it's like, you know, stomp the brakes here. Um, probably made a lot of sense in the seventies when that came out in the eighties, when it you know gained prominence because the policy related to physical education was probably a little bit more friendly, but you know, mid 2000 teens, when I'm reading this, I'm like, we don't have that space. We don't have right. that luxury of being able to sit in a classroom for a day or two and then be physically active and apply it. So I'm like, well, how the heck can we still teach this, but also provide physical activity to students? And, you know, to your question, I think that's where online instruction can help teachers improve it. It just, uh, it gives students a chance even to hear it. Cause the reality I think in many ways is that teachers don't have time and space to really get this in their face-to-face classes. Right. If you're teaching two 30-minute classes and counting that as physical education, it's hard to go into the classroom for one of those for a lot of teachers. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. and I know uh, David Dom's been on there on here before on a podcast. You've come on uh, to talk about online instruction and PE. Can you talk about what we know so far about kind of online PE during the last two years and I mean, a lot of our teaching in K to 12 settings and even universities has shifted online uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you kind of give us an update of what we know or do we know more? Uh, <laughs> speaking frankly, I, I don't know. I, I think what we do know is it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's the big picture. It's hard for teachers to sort of um, to do this and do it effectively and, and maybe even want to do it. And so um, I'll be a little bit of a critic uh, about a lot of the findings from the COVID-19 area. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they give us anything to really build on uh, necessarily. I mean, teachers had trouble. Uh, the, the content, you know, didn't often align with with what they thought perhaps should be in a physical education class. There were accessibility issues, there's student engagement issues. Um, and I don't think at the end of the day, it really reflects what online physical education or the use of online instruction actually could be. Um, so. And, and you, you know, and I have nice. talked about this of saying like the last two years of quote unquote, online PE has been online, online, like pandemic physical education. And it (laughs) hasn't been what, let's say in 2019 or 2018, people who are doing research on online programs, which were structured for students to learn remotely, but there wasn't like, everybody has to do it. 98% of people who are teaching it don't know how to teach online, have never taken a course on online physical education pedagogy, have, you know, don't know if 30% of their students are even logging on. Like, so is that, do you feel like that has dissipated a little bit or has there been like a new surge in interest? Because I mean, I know that there are certain school districts when we thought we were coming out of the pandemic in the summer, going into this last fall semester, people were like, hey, we're going back to normal. And there were school districts that started online academies that they were mm-hmm. like, hey, this actually worked for certain 
students, not all students, but certain students want that online option. So has there been like, has it been like reinvigorated in this research area? Yeah, I don't want to, maybe it's not reinvigorated. It's just like, it, you know, you think of that diffusions of innovation curve. I think it just kind of pushed a lot of people that are a lot of districts or administrators that might've been a little bit more hesitant uh, and demonstrated that it does have value at least, you know, in the near future. But, you know, even before the pandemic, like tons of districts were adopting online academies. We just hadn't been talking about it as a field. Um, it was it's not uncommon for a lot of states to allow students to take online physical education for credit over the summer. Um, you know, so I think what we're seeing now, you know, it, there might be a little bit of a transition from like state wide virtual schools to more uh, localized virtual academies like you spoke about. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be something that I'm, I'm noticing a lot more. And so. And in to your knowledge, ways, you know, is there in in those virtual academies, is physical education a normal part of those academies? Or is it just like, hey, we're going online, we're just not going to cover physical education? Or or is that still like a similar presence? Yeah, it just depends, I think, on on what what the, the policies are. And, and it, you know, a lot of this is a policy issue. So for example, you know, the ones that I'm familiar with, the teachers that I know that work in these areas, the research that I've done, physical education is part of it. Uh, but the question is, is what external provider are they using to get credit? And I think, mm -hmm. and this is just sort of heuristic, just observational from what I've gathered. It's like, we'll just require this physical education credit it's probably garbage, but don't ask, don't tell, just get past and, and get on with it. Um, and in, in, in one state, you know, certified teachers are recruited to work for these academies and they get paid per student that passes. Oh, no way. <laughs> so, so you can imagine, and I didn't report any of this, you know, in the papers yet, but you know, there were several teachers I've talked to that are like, it's just, it's an ethical dilemma. Right. It's like, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm a certified teacher, so I'm qualified for this. It's extra money in the summertime. I don't have to do much. And then on the other hand, it's not quality. Kids are getting credit for it. And that's their PE experience for entire high school right. tenure. So and I, they're, I just and they're getting that, two months of physical education and then the other 10 months, they have no requirement to do any physical education at all. Correct, because that counts the same as a student that would have taken a full year of physical education. Right. Um, and so I don't even know if you would call that that. I think it's just a rubber stamp for your graduation credit, really. Right. Um, and I don't know if that problem's solved through research. It's like almost like it needs to be like some investigative journalism or something like to, to kind of get at like the incentive structures of these big time credit things. Again, right. I think that, that's probably another podcast, but it, you know, these are some of the hidden issues related to this stuff that, you know, I just don't know if a lot of people are aware of and what we can do about it. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you about the, the theories that you used in the paper, uh, unified theory of acceptance and use of technology. Can you explain those? So we yeah. kind of understand what that is. Yeah, yeah, I love this theory. Um, so this theory came out 
2003 Venkatesh and colleagues, it, it sort of originated in information uh, systems technology. So the original paper was like 53 or 55 pages. Um, and basically what it did was it consolidated um, the, some of the most popular um, human behavior and technology adoption theories of the time. So, so we think of technology acceptance model, theory of reasoned action, motivational model, theory of planned behavior, diffusions of, you know, diffusions of innovation. Um, we're all sort of modeled and massaged as the, the quantitative people do. And, and four determinants sort of emerged as being able to predict up to 70% of use behavior in technology. Hmm. Um, effort expectancy, so is it easy to use or the degree of complexity of its use? Performance expectancy, like does this help me do my job better? Social influence is basically like, are important people using this and should I use it? Um, and then facilitating conditions. So, so the degree of support or lack thereof um, that exists. Yeah. So that was sort of the, the, the aspect or the, the theory that I used for the teacher paper um, that just came out in JTPE. Um, but then in 2012, a second iteration came uh, for consumer adoption. And that added price value, basically trade-off between monetary cost and benefit. Hedonic motivation is just, is it fun to use or pleasurable? And then habit, which is just, you know, the tendency to perform pattern behavior. So sort of a, a combination of, of those two iterations and then uh, a 2016 iteration, which added learning value as a construct was, was, was the the muddled theory that we used for, for this uh, paper. Yeah. Um, and so, I like it because it's an umbrella theory. Like, mm -hmm. like I, I, and in some ways, I think there needs to be a little bit, of, and I don't know if how I wrote about in these two papers is enough, but I think moving forward, more research that uh, examines technology use should test this theory. Because in a way, you know, using one of those theories that's included in it is, is, is sort of incomplete in some ways. So um, I like this theory. I want, I want people to sort of know about it and, and test it, see if it works. And that's kind of what the, the approach that we took, why we did a qualitative deductive approach, was to see if it even fit or if it even could, you know, explain what the heck was going on with, with students' use of online learning. Yeah. So what did you do in the study? Like, what are, what are your methods? Yeah, so this is, like I said, it's a qualitative deductive approach. We used um, semi-structured interview guide. Um, we interviewed 37 students during their physical education class, which was is a limitation of the study. Um, you know, generally during qualitative research, you want to do long, in-depth conversations. These are about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and we were fine with that because it was sort of an exploratory study. We were sort of like validating the theory in a qualitative sense mm -hmm. so we just wanted to kind of you know see if it fit and also didn't want kids to kind of sit out their whole PE class if we want right. to be honest so um yeah it was great most of the kids were um ninth graders 14 year olds or a couple um upper class uh students who had to get PE credit to graduate um but yeah we we're thankful that they talked to us and and I think we got some, some pretty pretty good information from them. And so what what was in general, you call the curriculum IPE, uh, which yeah. is Supplemental Online Health Related Fitness 
knowledge curriculum. So can you talk to me about what that is and how it works? Yeah, so, and, and really this paper isn't about IPE other than that was the curriculum they're using. I think a lot of the themes that, you know, we can talk about would, I don't want to say generalize, but relate to other curriculums that are used. Mm -hmm. So, you know, IPE, again, is just what this school decided to use. Um, and it's an external curriculum. It's used uh, predominantly in the Midwest, as far as I know. It might be sort of expanding. At the time, it was being beta tested. So it was still in development, and therefore it was offered for free to the schools. Um, but it's 15 weeks or two 15-week, um, I guess, courses, you could call them. Um, this school stranded them together for a whole year worth of health-related fitness knowledge. Um, it was implemented, and, I, and that's why I called it a supplemental. It was implemented as a supplemental curriculum to their standard traditional physical education, which mm -hmm. could be described as a mix of, like, fitness and um, team sports. Okay. So IPE was introduced at the beginning of the school year. Go ahead and do it. I'll remind you to do it but it's, you know, it was pretty much on the students to, to get through it. Um, so it's a asynchronous. Asynchronous, yeah, totally um, packaged. It included some uh, automated assessments for each of the videos just to sort of encourage accountability. Um, and then one final at the end of each course where the teacher proctored and um, I believe they graded that as well. So okay. really the only... The only thing the teacher needed to do was give the kids a login and uh, monitor and grade the final assessments. So, and that's kind of how it went down, <laughs> as you as you read. Yeah. So, do you know if this is a uh, a curriculum that the school paid for? Is this like, you know, we we talk yeah, about so, outsourcing a lot of yeah. of knowledge of teaching. So, did this fit into that category? Yeah, so, and I think there are a lot of peripheral issues related that we can kind of get into um, as we talk about the, the, the results. But so at the time, IPE was free. And um, shortly after I interviewed, um, I think it was 28 teachers related to their use of IPE, uh, it started um, charging. Like the curriculum was finalized based on some of the, I guess, market research they were doing. And then they start charging. Hmm. So at this time, it was free shortly after. I don't know if the school kept using it. A lot of schools dropped it once they started charging. Right. Um, but, but yeah. It's interesting. So what are, what are some of the facilitators and the challenges that students faced in, in engaging with this IPE curriculum? So we generated four themes related to their use um, and sort of acceptance of of IPE um, if they did it. So we asked them like sort of <laughs> how they used it, what, you know, what devices they use, where they, where they used it, when they did it, just kind of get an idea of, you know, when our students engaging with physical education, homework essentially is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I say, if they did it, <laughs> um, they did it alone. Um, and it was a matter of convenience. Um, so a lot of them just kind of did it on their phones, on the bus. Um, one of the, one of the points we made, 
you brought up in our previous conversation was was sort of an equity thing and um this was a fairly wealthy school district but it was rural so students struggled with with wi-fi if they lived out right. you know on a farm or out out in the um, peripheral towns mm-hmm. um so those students tended to do it you know in school or during study hall Another theme was, you know, it was easy to use, but it was also easy to ignore um, because of, uh, I think because it was so easy. <laughs> like a lot right. of kids just waited until the last minute, um, did it, you know, all at once in some cases. Um, there was experienced, you know, feelings of disconnect. They didn't feel like it was connected well to their curriculum in their face-to-face class and that sort of... Uh, created some feelings of conflict, like why the heck are we using this? Um, and then ultimately they ascribed low value to it and therefore, you know, didn't do it. Right. And so, you know, these themes are sort of related to the, you taught determinants. Um, you know, they did it, they did it alone. That's facilitating conditions, easy to use as effort expectancy, you know, performance expectancy was like, you know, it's not really providing a lot of value. <laughs> um, and then low low value learning, low priorities sort of relate to learning value. Do you have overall numbers on the percentages of who actually completed? Like, do you do, did you track that across the school or across the thirty two interviews that you had? No, um, that would be a good question to ask. And you know, I think that's a sort of the next level is like really like how are students engaging on the digital end mm-hmm. and. Technology is available to be able to do that. I mean, a lot of these learning management systems um, give you those metrics. You know, some even like track eye, you know, there's research that tracks like eye movement and stuff, you know, on the screen to see where kids are looking and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, I don't know how valuable that would be for this, but um, at least in times of like login time and, you know, video time, like how long did they watch a video? We don't have that data, those data, but I think that would be super interesting for sure, you know, in follow-ups. I just recently visited a school in this area and they they had made all these instructional videos for like developing skills. Let's say for like a volleyball or floor hockey unit, they put these supplemental videos for students who are struggling or want extra information. They can look through these videos of actual students from previous years doing it. And, and I asked the teacher, I said, uh, how how much like how often do the students go on and click on it? And he was like, I'm not sure. And I, I asked him if he can track it. And because I know on, on Blackboard, which is not what this school district uses, I know on Blackboard, I can, on my classes, I can see track number of views or track people's mm-hmm. engagement on it. And then sometimes I put up this like supplemental video that I feel like is really important, but the students are already doing a lot. So I said, hey, this is voluntary. I'd like for you to look at it. But I understand if you don't have time. And that means that like 10% of my students watch it. Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I need to make it mandatory. And even when I make things mandatory, I can see that some people just didn't engage with it at all or they never clicked on it. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting because in order for you to read this article, you would have to have gone to this page and clicked this link. So I know for a right. fact that you didn't read it versus, you know, old school way of saying read chapter five in your book you just have no idea if they read or not so i think that there's a lot more surveillance that we can have now which is 
good and bad, you know, like how, how far do we go on surveillance of knowing exactly who did not do the reading? Right. And then if you yeah. go in and say like, oh, well, they clicked on the link. Cool. Then they just know to go on and click on the link just so they know they're not going to get called out in class. Right. Well, yeah. And I think even videos too, you can see how long, you know, what the average watch time is too. So, you know, that it's an interesting idea. It's like, it's not what data driven teaching is, you know, in, in the current sense, but I mm -hmm. think, you know, learning about how to use those types of data or engagement data is kind of an interesting thing to think about and might be an aspect of like, you know, TPAC that we're sort of missing in our programs. Yeah. Um, Cause it does take a level of like technology sort of comfort to be able to even know that exists, let alone, how to do it on the learning management system and then like okay so now you know what do you do with that is it appropriate to you know call out a kid or is it appropriate to even use it as a surveillance um you know tool or something yeah. like that but, and do you remember yeah, the acronym for tpac so you can say it to people who just said what's tpac technological pedagogical content knowledge got it See, I've, right? I've, I've had that in a research project once, but I forgot what the acronym was. So I, I just thought you'd, you'd figure it out. Yeah, yeah. So in the, in the themes that you mentioned, you, you talk about potentially positive aspects of IP, but also discuss the downfalls of the aspects based on the perception of the students. So, for example, the students mentioned that it's an easy curriculum to navigate, but it's also easy to game the system without engaging just to pass the modules. So can you give us a few more examples and tell us how this research was unique in bringing up these reflections? Yeah, yeah, these, the responses really brought up more questions or curiosities <laughs> than I had expected. I, you know, I think first thing that sort of popped into my mind is it might be a potential hierarchy of Utah factors. Um, and at the very least, I think what we found points to some features we could use for effective online instructional design. Um, so kind of we're, we're getting at, you know, the question is what do we know about online? I think there's something in this paper in the teaching paper that we could start to build on. And, and so for example, effort expectancy matters, like kids need to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, and so, you know, I would recommend and the thing about, external providers is it's different than the standard learning management system. So there's a danger, you know, IP was used easy to use and that was a good thing. It was different than the regular learning management system like Blackboard or Google um, or Schoology or whatever. So a consideration for teachers thinking about whether or not they want to use an external provider is are kids going to be able to navigate it? You know, how different is it from the standard canvas that the school uses mm -hmm. um and will that cause trouble because that will disrupt their engagement um but on the flip side you know ip was so easy to use and the content was so i want to say basic but simple at least as expressed by the students that engagement suffered <laughs> and then their learning value diminished because it was so easy so you know effort expectancy needs to be sort of balanced with learning value potentially um, right. Whereas a teacher who is giving formative assessments, teaching to the class and realizing, wow, this is really too easy. They can pivot and they can change that teaching and be responsive to that. So it wouldn't be too easy. 
right? Or, exactly. But if it's an asynchronous format that's just set up and set to play for the next 30 weeks, there's no, there's no check-in to see if it was too easy or too hard. Right. And this is where sort of some of the issues related to external providers, not just IP. I want to be clear. This is just packaged curric asynchronous curriculum because I don't think asynchronous is necessarily bad if the teacher designs it and they have knowledge of students built into that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're relying on some, you know, computer in the cloud to develop this, you know, who might who might not have you know, they're built, an external provider is building for the broadest, most general student body they want it to relate everywhere and and you know the reality is is we're teaching diverse students so um yeah the, well, the fixed well, inflexible aspect of ipe was really kind of an issue and inhibited students from engaging because teachers couldn't go in there and add an assessment and actually the teachers didn't even watch it a lot of right. them that i interviewed like they didn't even know what was in it mm-hmm so, yeah. you know, that's the other thing. That's a burden on teachers if, all right, I'm going to get this 30, 30, uh, I'm going to facilitate this external curriculum. It's 30 weeks. You better be watching what's going on there. Yeah. If kids have questions, if, you know, there's a lot of things that could come out yeah. from that by not being familiar with the content. So let's, let's think future wise. And, and I'm bringing this up because uh, one of the peak collaborators, we talked about uh, kind of the future and solutions and, in that peak collaborative, you talked about how, you know, there are things that we should be really like paying attention to. And other scholars would say like, well, computers and online is never going to replace a PE teacher, right? Because they are able to adapt so well. So let's put a hypothetical situation in 15 years, the AI that you talked about, about monitoring students' eye movements and being able to understand, you know, like even even certain basic uh, standardized tests give you as long as you're getting uh, the answers correct, they the algorithm gets harder and harder and harder questions until you top off and they get some sort of understanding. So do you think it's outside of our technology's trajectory to have in 15 years a online curriculum that makes it exactly like it, it uses these theories and it makes it exactly as tough as it needs to be for those students individually to stay in tune, which would be really hard to do that individually by a, a human teaching trying to make 160 students independent curriculums. Um, I mean, it's only out of the realm until somebody realizes they can make money from it, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe is the right, is the right answer. But like, so a lot of the speculation that I have, or a lot of sort of the, I don't want to say warnings, but like, Hey, we need to be paying attention to this is based on systems that don't currently exist. So like what the value I think of online physical education does is it, it, allows for content to be delivered that might not be normally delivered if that's very engaging that's a good thing ipe you know students said it wasn't as engaging as maybe it could be um, the other thing is is it, it efficiently assesses outcomes like formatively and consistently and so 
teachers that use this or systems that assess frequently now have data um, to prove that learning is occurring or isn't occurring. Um, and so there's, there's some of these like, uh, there's some baseline features about online that are really good. And so if we have this data that's being collected and a teacher then can go into the curriculum and figure out how to use it, then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the warning that I'm, I, I sort of put out there is like outcomes is what drive policy, right? Like, like we need to show outcomes of learning. If, if you don't show quality outcomes, then support probably diminishes. If you can show quality outcomes, then, support might be increased or at least stays the same. I, I'm just speculating here, but like a, an administrator says, oh, this computer, you know, we got, we got 30% of our kids on this online program. This thing is doing really well. We pay the equivalent of two teacher salaries a year to get 30% of our student body enrolled in this class. They're learning. I don't even have attendance sheet from my face-to-face -face physical education teachers, let alone an assessment. You know, in administrator sense, it's like, what's better in that, in that regard. Yeah. So, you know, it's not about promoting online. It's about, Hey, teachers, we need to be able to prove our worth because computers are going to show better outcomes. It doesn't mean it's better, you yeah. know, it's just better at showing outcomes. And if outcomes are the currency and, and drive policy change, what kind of decisions are going to be made when a computer shows better outcomes than a teacher? Yeah. Scary stuff. I think, and I think the alternative is we can blame the reason why we can't get outcomes is, is because of policy to begin with, mm -hmm. with large class sizes and limited equipment and all that. But, you know, I don't know if those types of conversations would be nuanced enough to be able to. Yeah. Uh, but so I just think. Yeah, go ahead. Things are shifting and like it's, it's really hard to predict because I think, you know, just to use the metaverse as, as an example, like, are you familiar with the metaverse? Yes, Have you yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I mean, so, so do I know exactly what it is, or did I hear Mark Zuckerberg tell me what the metaverse should be? And <laughs> right. then some other person said, we're already living in the metaverse, bro. You don't even know it. So, <laughs> uh, yes, kind of, <laughs> I know what the metaverse right. is. So from my understanding, metaverse is like this virtual world, right? Like, I mean, it's still being developed and, and, you know, there's a certain incentives to push people into this virtual reality world. And it's like, we laugh when Zuckerberg makes those ridiculous, you know, YouTube commercials or whatever. It's funny. It's hilarious. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like, well, what if, what if this is a shift? towards sort of more virtual existence or virtual living. And it's not outside the realm of possibility for like, hey, let's let's go skiing on an alpine ski thing. And that becomes part of physical education. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the slope is slippery towards, you know, sitting at home, having a school building, you know, virtually displayed on your goggles. And yeah. that's your school experience. Like, that's extreme, maybe sounds a little conspiratorial. I don't, I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think it will, but like nobody knew what the, you know, what the internet would do in 1995. And here we are, nobody knew us, you know, what kind of role smartphone would play. And all these things are, are impacting education. And, you know, online is, is here to stay, uh, unfortunately for, or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint. Um, 
So, you know, we just need to be thinking about, I, th- I think we just need to be thinking about like all the different ways this could go and like what could happen and, and how we can maybe leverage these tools for the benefit of the students. Yeah. And, and maybe even to, to, to preserve what we have already, a face-to-face outdoor social sunshine, real people, physical education. Yeah. And, and that part needs people to be sitting at the table when those decisions are made and to have advocates in understanding what the possibilities could be, but then still advocating for why, you know, why physical education in a physical format is really important still. Yeah. And think about ways that we can leverage technology, you know, in support of that. And also like being the one thing that I could see happening is like a lot of research citing back to the COVID research and online and using that as an mm-hmm. argument against it. And I don't think that's fair or genuine and but could still happen. It, it will happen. Yeah. I mean, I guess it will like, and you know, whatever, but like getting away from all of like the, the speculation and stuff, you know, at the end of the day, there might be some good things that online could provide we don't know yet you know fully what that could look like so like selectively citing pandemic pedagogies as an argument against that i think is is potentially inhibiting you know progress in the field yeah and i hope that it wouldn't happen but so your study clearly shows that not bridging the ip curriculum with what the students are learning in pe class at school is a huge issue so the quotes in your results section demonstrated that there's, the students are aware of the need to connect the content and that not doing so hinders their learning and motivation. So do you have any suggestions on what the teachers and students could, like, what could we do to support uh, the use of uh, IPE better? Yeah, I think at, at the end of the day, blended learning is the way to go, at least with this. You know, an IPE was sort of marketed as a blended learning curriculum. So what that means is, you know, using the online modules to sort of prime and prepare students for face-to-face learning where they can apply that knowledge in, you know, social movement-oriented experiences. Um, So IPE was sort of misused. And actually, based on the student interviews, we went back to the teacher interviews to sort of analyze how the rest of the teachers were using it and stand by for a future publication in that regard you know the question is 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 it blended learning if no blending occurs Hmm. yeah (laughs) you know um so you know short answer is use the blended learning and you know there's a lot of layers to that in terms of how we prepare teachers let me ask you this though because one of the things that i found in in my uh technology study that i did was that students really despised the homework. They said yeah. that they are, they are so overwhelmed with homework that they just didn't have time to do the stuff I was asking for and also because I wasn't able to make it for credit so they knew it didn't matter. But like in this blended learning model, something's gotta give, right? If physical education all of a sudden moves to blended learning, which I think is a really good way to like bring in this cognitive stuff about, you know, physiology and anatomy and how the heart works and then 
go do the stuff that makes your heart beat faster and then learn through it. But like, where do we find the time? You know, so like, how can we, like, can we justify adding more homework to, to students? Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple different points in there. I think number one is I don't think that we should sort of compare ourselves to like see ourselves differently than math, chemistry, English, and all that. So, you know, if they're encouraged and allowed to provide homework, then I think PE is within its right as an academic subject to provide homework. Now, mm -hmm. there needs to be some collective communication uh, across teachers about sort of the homework burden and we should be balancing it across the subjects. But at the end of the day, I think as it comes down to a policy issue and if, if schools are requiring a virtual learning component, which many of them are now, or a lot of the homework is happening online, then I think the first hour and a half of a high school day should be uh, uh, do your virtual learning or two hours even. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so maybe it's a policy issue where, you know, the school during the day, because homework's terrible. Everybody hates it. If you're already, you know, if you're learning in school, why the heck do I need an hour extra work? Like, you know, isn't that just mean the teaching's not good or whatever, but. And an um, hour, hour is not even close to cutting it for some of these students. Like they're coming right, home which at is, like three, they're getting done at seven, eight o'clock. You know, and we like, don't want him sitting down. We don't yeah. want him sitting down in front of his screen. That's and a lot of students said that they're like, "What am I doing this in PE for?" I thought it was a physical activity course. Like, why yeah. am I sitting in front of a computer? Yeah. And that's legit. Mm -hmm. But it goes, you know, it goes back to the teacher. I think not preparing them well to use it. First of all, but second of all, I think the schools need to do a better job of providing space for virtual learning. If it's you know happening, um, if they're if they're emphasizing blended learning or use of virtual, I think there needs to be time during the school day. Yeah, and actually read this like i don't know what i was doing i was like in barnes and noble or something i saw this like architecture quarterly or something it was and i was just like flipping through it for some reason and and it was like on the future of school design and this is another hmm. inspiration for why i'm like thinking's kind of the way i am is the, the future design of schools this one architect was writing about is no libraries no cafeterias and no gyms well and and heavily uh, heavily focused on communal learning spaces for collaborative learning and virtual instruction engagement. Um, so it's when, like, if when's that's the last time that author has been to a school? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take a lot for that even like, but you know, yeah. some of these niche schools, some charter schools, some, you know, it might be like a science and technology Academy that might be adopting these new designs. And you know, again, another podcast we have a lot to talk you know a lot to talk about later but um that just speaks to like school design sort of adopting to this new trend in, in collaborative sort of virtual augmented um learning right um, yeah so kind of in and working to wrap this up what what would be the main things that stakeholders should think of before deciding to use an online curriculum, maybe not IPE, but something similar, uh, if, they're, if they want to support students' development of, for example, health-related fitness knowledge? Yeah, so 
learning culture, I think, is something that, you know, needs to be thought about. You know, is there a culture of learning within in your physical education class where students sort of don't rebel if they get homework? And that, of course, takes time to, to develop. But, you know, there, there needs to be some expectation of, of learning that's occurring. Mm-hmm. you know, for this to kind of vibe with students. Yeah. You know, what is student readiness? Have they taken flip learning before in other classes? In this study, this was the first time they ever took an online class. So the lack of support was magnified, I think, from the teacher because students had never really participated in autonomous online learning before. So, you know, supporting students learning, right. learning how to learn type thing, mm-hmm. I think is important. Um, it needs to be grounded in the curriculum. Like this kind of came out of nowhere, this heart really fitness knowledge because the PE class they were expecting and participating in face-to-face was team sport fitness-based without sort of the health-related aspect of it. Right. So they're like, what are we even doing here? Um, and, and you know, ultimately consider a blended approach where the teacher at least participates in the design in some aspect of design process like teachers can create content it's not that difficult um to to develop a powerpoint and maybe do a voice recording um you know you don't have to have a, a green screen you know or anything like that or have to be able to edit a video at this point you know maybe down the road but um and that's kind of why you know we designed the curriculums that we put out at the beginning of the pandemic the way that we did. It was really inviting teachers into the design process so that students were getting information that from somebody that they knew, somebody they trusted, but also the information was relevant to the student body because everything in, a, in an external curriculum might not be relevant yeah. or appropriate or it, you know engaging. Is blended learning the same thing as flipped learning? Yeah, interchangeable. Okay. Yeah. Um, so kind of considering your study, what's the main takeaway message you want to pass through to teachers and other stakeholders about um, online P uh, curriculum? Uh, like what should we consider moving forward other than like my disastrous idea of AI figuring out how to <laughs> make a, make a PE curriculum in 15 years? Uh, I don't, think that's a disastrous idea if it's done real you know it could could be good but i you know i think you know thinking about how we can leverage online physical education or online instructional modalities to get what we want i mean i think that's the approach that i'm coming from is like you know we're getting squeezed with the amount of time we see students we're getting squeezed with what that enables us to even be able to do as teachers like large class sizes, not see them very often, inhibits assessment, inhibits efficient assessment. Uh, you don't see them enough to really make anything use of those assessments. Um, and so while being cognizant of the homework burden, while being cognizant of the readiness of the students, can you use physical online modalities to promote physical activity in the home? Yeah. Can you use online modalities to cover content that you might not feel you have time or might not be able to cover? Um, Can you infuse assessment where it might not have been possible or appropriate? Um, I think there's ways that we can use online to really benefit face-to-face and kind of get a little bit more of what we want and 
I'll just do a quick plug of a paper that we wrote about how online um, can support the goals of CSPAP. It was just published in JTPE. Um, enjoyed writing that with the crew. And I think that kind of gives a little bit more um, insight in how we can sort of align online learning with some you know, broad national level initiatives like comprehensive school physical activity programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Chad, for coming on. Um, and for those of you who are listening, want to read more about this, um, you can look up Chad's uh, Google Scholar profile. I'll put it on there. He's published a lot on this area. Um, I think there are in the U.S. there's like, I'd say, three to five people who are doing a lot of work on um, on online learning, on technology. Uh, and Chad, you're definitely definitely in that group. Um, we've talked to you before on the podcast, and and uh, I know that you have some exciting stuff coming up. So um, appreciate you sharing. And I know that online PE is not going away. So there'll be a there's a rich, rich field of information there waiting to be understood. Yeah, I think so. And it's always fun for collaboration. So if anybody's interested, feel free to reach out. And I'm just thankful for this podcast and let me riff a little bit here. So, yeah, you know, we kind of we kind of hit a bunch, but it's a lot of interesting topics and, and it's always fun. So and we came up with four other podcast episodes. So that's exactly. always good. Stay tuned. Awesome. So for those of you who want to read the article, uh, you can check the full citation in the comments section. And uh, as always, thanks to Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. That's all we got. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.